Hi, I'm Sharon Renfro of SharonRenfro.com and Our Hearts and Minds, an online life coaching service specializing in relationship issues. Welcome to today's free podcast, The Psychology of Relationships, The Emotional State of Mind, Conflict. The Psychology of Relationships is a series of podcasts, with each podcast building on the knowledge from the previous podcast. I recommend listening to the podcast in order to benefit fully from these unique and alternative ideas. Now, if these ideas make sense to you, you may want to purchase my book, Our Hearts and Minds, The Psychology of Relationships, from my website, SharonRenfro.com. I hope you'll take a few minutes to browse the website to acquaint yourself with my services and products. I think you'll find some new and exciting ideas in these podcasts to help you to have the relationship that you want. So, let's get started. In podcast one, two concepts from Bowen Family Systems Theory were introduced, the self and psychology. These two concepts form the fundamental structure of the theory. The self is a system of interactive components whose interactions result in behavior. This interactive system works at a, an internal level and becomes externalized through our behavior. The individual awareness of the interaction of all the components of self is pretty much non-existent. If asked, no one could articulate how the individual components of self have interacted to produce a specific behavior. The interactions form a system with each component inextricably connected to the other. All behaviors, all behaviors, are a result of these interactions of all of the components of self, genetic, biological, constitutional, physiological, physical, cellular reactivity, and psychological. The outcome of these interactions forms a full mind-body connection, a clever design of evolution that helps to keep us safe. In order to use this process to enhance safety of self, we must have some awareness of at least a portion of the process, and that is the role of the psychological component of self. It is through the psychological component of self that we have any awareness of who we are and what we do. Awareness is determined by the perceptual information gathered in a situation. The psychological component of self is the state of mind of the individual at any given moment in time that assesses for individual safety or threat as the individual relates to others. Awareness of self is a function of the psychological component of self. Three states of mind are possible and each of these states of mind evolved to meet the demands of increasingly complex environments. Three levels of awareness exist, and each of these levels of awareness evolved to provide the human being with adaptive strategies that would be adaptive to the specific level of complexity the human faced. In the simplest of environments, few perceptions were needed to form an interpretation. The fewer perceptions used, the quicker an interpretation of the situation was formulated, which provided quicker behavioral responses. The simple interpretation of safety or threat and pushing all perceptions into one of those two categories using as few perceptions as possible increased the likelihood of survival 
in physically dangerous environments. Awareness of self was minimal. As the world increased in complexity and longer periods of time were required for offspring to learn the necessary knowledge, skills, tools, and strategies, the awareness of feelings for another person enhanced survival of the species. Awareness of another person was simply an awareness of what my feelings were about the other person. So in fact, the awareness was about my feelings that had the potential to alter my behavior in a way that I would act on behalf of another person to keep him or her safe. Feelings also helped to ensure that people would act in consort to protect the group, which enhanced survival of the offspring. We see this in other social animals when they place young in the center of the group as mature individuals function to protect young. An individual would be likely to interpret the other person's safety as his or her own safety. The adaptive strategy of blurring the boundaries between self and another person increased the likelihood of survival during the extended time needed for an individual to reach maturity to reproduce. Awareness was then extended beyond the awareness of individual safety to now include individual safety and the safety of those individuals for whom the individual sensed positive feelings. Then, with the evolution of the objective state of mind, individual awareness expanded. Massive amounts of data could be gathered and used to understand circumstances in a very different way. And now, not only was there a recognition of the individual as an individual entity, but a recognition of the system as a whole was now possible. With the evolution of this state of mind, the individual could consider a multitude of factors which altered the ability to understand the world, including consideration of the future. Awareness of self encompassed much more than simply assessing for threat and safety, and that awareness makes the human being uniquely human. But access to that level of awareness is learned. <coughs> Most of the time, Limited learning results in limited functions due to limited awareness. Individuals operate from this limited awareness by using the emotional state of mind. If the assessment of limited information is, I am safe, the individual is calm. If the assessment of limited information is, I am threatened, the individual is anxious. When an individual experiences anxiety from the limited assessment of the emotional state of mind, only four behaviors are possible. Behaviors meant to restore the individual to a state of calm or safety. Those four behaviors are conflict, distance, pretend, and cutoff. As we have discussed in podcast two, these four behaviors can be found in all of nature. Fight, flight, camouflage, and play dead. The behaviors are simple and they're designed to respond to a very simple environment. One of the major threats to which individuals respond as we no longer live in dominantly physically dangerous environments is the imbalance and the need to be an individual self and the need to be in a relationship. Now as that assessment using the emotional state of mind focuses solely on the individual with no consideration of the other person 
a high degree of error occurs. That error rate is simply ignored, but the errors complicate the relationship even further. As conflict, distance, pretend, and cutoff are directed at the threat, the relationship partner, the relationship partner reacts to the behaviors as if those behaviors pose a threat to them. A vicious cycle or emotional reaction establishes a pattern in the relationship that cannot be broken as long as the emotional state of mind continues to function. Sometimes these days this type of process is called the lizard brain. The problem is that as these emotional reactions present a threat to each person, it's difficult to interrupt the cycle. The shift in the balance between the need to be a self and the need for a relationship drives the process. Usually, a spike in the need for the relationship bolstered by the decrease in the need to be a self because conflict, distance, pretend, or cutoff has reestablished the sense of self ends the emotionally reactive loop. But this patterned behavioral reaction to threat does not resolve the underlying immature emotional assessment of threat. I'm going to say that again. This pattern of behavioral reaction to threat does not resolve the underlying immature emotional assessment of threat. The psychological component is the state of mind of the individual of which three exist. These states of mind correspond with brain structures which evolved to manage increasingly complex environments, an alternative evolutionary strategy to mutation. The three states of mind and their adaptive strategies for each state of mind are the emotional state of mind, which generates emotions, safety, which is sensed as calm, or threat, which is sensed as anxiety. Secondly, the subjective state of mind, feelings, either positive or negative. And thirdly, the objective state of mind, thoughts, research, reason, and reflection. Each state of mind is generated by three distinct areas of the brain, add-ons from evolution to provide adaptive strategies for increasingly complex environments. These three states of mind are available to perform assessments of the environment and provide very specific behavioral strategies depending on the assessment. Now, if we look at some work that's been done by Paul McLean on the trine brain, the emotional state of mind correlates to the reptilian complex, and that's where the notion of lizard-like behavior comes from in relationships. The behaviors are very minimal, only four possible, because a lizard only needed those four behaviors to keep it safe. The environment of a lizard is extremely simple, and it is a yes or no response about its safety or the threat. The subjective state of mind corresponds to the limbic system as discussed by McLean, and the objective state of mind corresponds to the neocortex. All human perceptions and experiences are assessed by the emotional state of mind, producing one of two emotions safety experienced as calm, or threat experienced as anxiety. This very simple, instinctual, automatic assessment determines the state of threat or safety based on the comfortable balance individuals formed early in life between the need to be an individual self 
and the need to be in a relationship. Most people continue the emotional assessment using the subjective state of mind which produces feelings to verify the accuracy of the emotional assessment. So the emotional state of mind assesses everything and for most people an assessment of feelings is an add-on. Rarely people continue to reassess the emotional assessment using the objective state of mind which allows us the ability to think. The emotional state of mind functions from instinct. It performs its assessments automatically based on a very minimal amount of information. As a result, a great deal of information is filtered to keep the experience simple for this assessment. It's like putting on blinders, a hat, and sunglasses to see the world. A great deal of what our sensory organs could perceive simply goes unnoticed. The limitations on perceptual input are learned early in life as we learn what is important and what is unimportant. We rely on extremely subtle cues from the environment, our experiences, for this level of assessment. The assessment provides only one of two emotions, safety or threat, based on very little data. The sole purpose of the emotional state of mind is to return us to safety within our relationships as immediately as is possible. That means we must react to secure our safety. After massive amounts of information has been ignored and the assessment has been made, we instantly behave. It's hard to make sense of this process as it seems so very limited, but this emotional state of mind is an ancient process which evolved when the world and experiences were very simple and very physically dangerous. In order to function, the emotional state of mind simply ignores what is too much information. Additions to the brain were meant to correct this simplistic assessment when experiences were much more complex. Conventional psychology has encouraged ignoring more advanced assessments which would produce higher levels of accuracy and offer infinite behavioral possibilities. We're encouraged to listen to our gut to use the four behaviors available. When we sense threat with an emotional assessment, we ignore objective assessment entirely, which is the only state of mind that can perform accurate assessments with a great deal of data in complex circumstances, producing a high level of accuracy. When the emotional state of mind assesses the environment or experience as being safe, the human being is free to express many different behaviors and experience emotions, feelings, and thoughts. When the emotional state of mind assesses the environment or experience as a threat, the human being automatically expresses only four different behaviors. We can find parallel behaviors in nature. The four behaviors along with behaviors found in other species in nature are 1. Conflict, which is fight. 2. Distance, which is flight, 3. Pretend, which is camouflage, and 4. Cutoff, which is play dead. <coughs> As discussed in Podcast 1, relationship partners experience these four behaviors being directed at them as a threat. Anyone would. Once assessed as a threat by the, in, by the relationship partner's emotional state of mind, the relationship partner reacts with his or her own behaviors of conflict, distance, pretend, or cutoff. 
Now, that responsive behavior discharged at the original person is also experienced as a threat. And once again, an emotionally reactive behavior is directed at the relationship partner. It requires only a short amount of time to be totally engaged in a massive emotional reaction. After it's over, you won't even be able to recall how it started. We perceive a threat and we behave instantly, and that is mirrored in our partner. The behavior oftentimes quells our anxiety, and that quelling is the only validation that we need to know that we are in fact threatened and behaved appropriately. It is only later that we realize we said and or did things that we regret. There's no backspace button for these reactions. We have gained no new skills during these reactions, and we have probably damaged our relationships. While we usually make up and go on about our lives, damage to the relationship has been done, and we have lost some degree of confidence in managing our own life. When the next issue arises and the past issue is brought up again, we realize that nothing was resolved and damage was done. So this podcast focuses on conflict. Future podcasts will focus on each of the three remaining behaviors. These focused explorations will help you to identify and understand each of these four behaviors. Later, we'll explore ways to manage the four behaviors effectively. Conflict is the build-up and release of anxiety based on an emotional assessment of threat. It is the intentional imposition of one's will onto a relationship partner in an attempt to manage anxiety to a perceived threat. I'm going to say that again. Conflict is the intentional imposition of one's will onto a relationship partner in an attempt to manage anxiety to a perceived threat. The threat stems from an imbalance between the need to be a self and the need to be in a relationship. As discussed earlier, each individual in a relationship must balance the need to be an individual self and the need to be in a relationship. When the individual's delicate balance becomes disturbed, a sense of calm is disrupted and the emotional reaction is anxiety to the threat. The conflict may take the form of a verbal argument or even escalate to a physical altercation. Conflictual behaviors such as nagging, being critical, accusations, or other behaviors start the conflictual process that leads to the argument. The conflict can be an attempt to bolster a threatened sense of self or to force the other person to somehow commit to the relationship in a manner that the conflicted person perceives as his or her need. The person who initiates an argument perceives and interprets some threat to self from the relationship partner or perceives the relationship itself as threatened. The emotional response of conflict for the early human being was an adaptation. In nature, animals engage in fights to establish dominance, whether the motivation is food, access to sexual reproduction, hierarchy within a group, or some other type of control. The fight determines whether or not one can impose one's will on another being. In human relationships, conflict serves similar purposes. In intimate relationships, the innate drive toward conflict becomes the modus operandi when conflict has proven successful 
and having one's individual needs met, as well as maintaining the balance between the need to be an individual self and the need to be in a relationship. The actual circumstances may not warrant conflict, but if conflict has successfully reduced anxiety in the past, then conflict is used without question as to its efficacy in actually solving relationship issues or bolstering the sense of self. The only thing that matters in the moment is that the anxiety, misinterpretation, and misperception of a threat is reduced and the person experiences calm again. The videos that John and Julie Gottman produced, which was described in Podcast 1 and 2, captured babies engaging in four emotional behaviors in basic attempts to deal with a threat. When caregivers' parents respond more frequently to a baby when the baby cries, imposes its will on parents' conflict, that baby learns to use conflict to meet its needs vis-a-vis the relationship system. An unmet need poses a threat, a real physical danger for a baby. Each time this scenario repeats, the baby learns to use conflict to meet its needs in relationships. As the human evolved and modified the environment, the environment became less dangerous over time and more complex experiences became the norm. But the emotional state of mind still elicits the same urgency of response. The complex is reduced to the simple, simply through filtering data. As a result, the level of awareness of the individual is minimal. From the emotional state of mind, when a threat is assessed, the behavioral responses are extremely limited and extremely automatic. To the person who uses conflict as a reaction to threat, the attack on the other person seems warranted. Experience over time has taught the person that conflict establishes the dominance of self while diminishing the self of the other person. The need to establish dominance stems from the perception that self has in some way been compromised by the relationship and must be re-exerted. An individual need has not been met and that represents a danger in the relationship, which of course is no longer a real physical danger. The physical danger that the infant faces when needs are not met has been paired over time with unmet needs. This learned association results in an automatic interpretation of unmet needs as dangerous. And furthermore, the association of the relationship results in the relationship partner being held accountable for the unmet needs. And in addition, the need for the parental relationship for so many years morphs into the need for in the adult relationship. So the needs to be an individual self and the needs for a relationship goes back and forth. Unless one can see this back and forth motion for what it really is, the behavior looks erratic and illogical, characteristics that could be labeled pathological from another point of view. The imposition of will sort of gets control of the movement back and forth as one person imposes his or her will on another and stabilizes a fragile balance until some other issue or event tips the balance yet again. This represents an extension of the entanglement of the relationship between parent and child. The partner relationship has somehow inhibited or obstructed the need being met, and the individual holds expectations that his or her relationship partner has some responsibility 
to do so. The relationship partner is not performing the role of the parent in meeting the need of the individual. And this failure to meet needs of a partner represents a threat to the self of the individual. The relationship partner is reacted to as if the relationship partner is responsible for the needs of the individual self. The entangled relationship that exists in the parent-child relationship simply extends into the adult relationship, even though these expectations are totally inappropriate in an adult relationship. In this case, the needs of the individual supersede the needs of the relationship partner. Conflict means that one person's needs trumps the other person's needs. The insidious nature of conflict is that it not only does not solve the problem, the current issue, but the underlying emotional process cannot be seen. As awareness of the emotional state of mind is extremely limited, the individual does not have any hope for insight into the emotional process in which he or she is fully engaged. And actually more than just engaged, entrenched is actually a better descriptor. The problem would actually be simple to address and correct, but unless one can see what the problem is, the likelihood of any remedial action is non-existent. Anyone who could hear this explanation with some support could begin the process of unlearning this adaptive strategy, reset realistic expectations about relationships, and learn new adaptive strategies that could work. Simple. But we make our relationships so very complex with simplistic emotionally based strategies that are akin to a snowshoe hare turning white when winter produces no snow. We make our own self vulnerable in our relationships because we don't engage our mind to think and open our heart. Simple, simple, simple. The needs may be to distinguish the self with blame focused on the demands of the relationship as the problem, the source of the threat. Or the needs may be reassurance of the commitment to the relationship by the relationship partner. The conflictual episode can switch between these two needs many times depending on the reaction of the relationship partner. For example, a man may experience the relationship partner as smothering him, and yet when she threatens to leave, the conflict may shift to him preventing her from leaving. We can actually see this simplistic immature emotional seesaw-like behavior. The couple engaged in the process, however, cannot see anything but the moment in which they are engaged. It's highly unlikely that either person will recognize the pattern that develops over time. Each is so focused on the here and now issue that erupts with that any pattern will go unnoticed particularly at the time of the conflict. Once a pattern has been set in place, and it won't take long, the pattern will repeat for the duration of the relationship because the pattern simply extends from the parent-child entangled relationship into the adult relationship. While people usually do not like conflict per se, the relief sensed when the anxiety is discharged may make it seem as if that person likes conflict. One young woman described it very well, saying that she felt so much better after a good argument. Now, her partner didn't experience the episodes this way, and she couldn't understand why he had such problems with the fact that they argued a lot. Conflict was simply the only way she knew how to express her needs and get her needs met 
and discharge her anxiety. As her anxiety escalated about the minimal sense of self she had in relation to her partner, she began the process of looking for the topic of the argument. It's like a drone armed with missiles high in the sky on high alert, monitoring its target for the first sign of threat. The person who uses conflict is locked and loaded and ready to fire, while the relationship partner may be unaware that he or she is about to be attacked. The person who uses conflict misinterprets the need to attack as being a strong-willed self that makes the other person submit to his or her own needs. It is the lack of a well-defined mature self that's the, actually the problem, but the person is simply unaware of the process that drives the conflict. Instead, the person maintains a hypervigilant state, monitoring the relationship for the threat that he or she now lives with constantly. The relationship partner is damned no matter what he or she does. <coughs> An elderly couple began a conflictual episode over a threat to self related to a trip she wanted to take from the U.S. to France. He perceived the trip to be too much for him physically and saw her as selfishly demanding to go to France, not considering his health needs a threat to himself. She accused him of always having to have things his way and trying to prevent her from enjoying life, a threat to self. She saw this trip as her last opportunity to go back to Europe to see her remaining family. He refused to go and he forbid her to go, threat to self. Then she said she was going with or without him, a threat to the relationship. He said if she left him, he would see another woman while she was away. A threat to the relationship. She then threatened to leave him right that moment, a threat to the relationship. So he took her car keys and said he didn't know where the car keys were, a threat to self. Then she started out the door to leave on foot, a threat to the relationship, and he physically stopped her, a threat to self. She raged at him, a threat to self. The argument lasted for hours, with several items being broken extremely unkind things being said that could never be retracted, a threat to self and to the relationship intermittently, and ended when he finally agreed to take the trip with her, a threat to self for him. He acquiesced in the hopes that his going along with what she wanted would finally secure her love for him, a threat to self. Her not loving him had been a long-term issue, a threat to self. We can see this ebb and flow of the perceived needs of each person clashing with the other's needs. In such volatile environments, these quickly vacillating threats between the need to be a self and the need for the relationship can fuel conflictual flames for a long period of time. And make no mistake that the embers are alive for even longer. This wasn't the first time this couple had argued. The argument started shortly after the wedding. His belief about his wife was that she had married him on the rebound after the man she really loved and wanted jilted her. He wanted, demanded, some evidence that she loved him. He had needed the same confirmation from his mother as he believed that she favored his brother over him. This man and his mother had bitter arguments in which he accused her of not loving him. He viewed himself as less than his brother and similarly viewed himself as less than the man that his wife had wanted to marry. 
She entered the marriage bitter by disappointment and in need of securing a husband. She deeply believed that she needed someone to take care of her and provide for her. In her eyes, her husband fell short of this responsibility. Each and every time he failed to meet her needs, she started nagging him until he gave in to her wants. She had been a baby who had to cry to get what she wanted and needed. The stage was set and the conflictual drama continued even into their 80s. The topic of conflict may change, but the underlying process remains the same. As the imbalance and the need to be a self and the need to be in a relationship increases, the intensity of the threat increases. Anxiety escalates to the point that the individual acts to impose his or her will on the relationship partner. The outcome of conflict will determine who returns to a state of calm and who will continue to be anxious. It's like passing the torch of anxiety until it's hard to recognize whose anxiety it really is. The relationship's entanglement can confuse the players. A person may not even know how she or he came to hold the torch of anxiety, but passing the anxiety to someone else is a natural outcome of sensing anxiety. The anxiety is so very uncomfortable based on the innate experience of the need to protect the self from a threat. The reaction is as if a real danger to the physical self exists. The anxiety is that intense. The force to do something now to protect self, only four options exist, consumes all of the life energy of the individual as he or she senses an intense need to protect self. This is the full mind-body response. The individual has been taught that a relationship is responsible to alleviate the anxiety and meet the need, thus dispensing with the threat. The level of awareness possible using the emotional state of mind renders any data points that could correct these erroneous perceptions and interpretations totally useless. The system of the individual is locked and loaded with every component of self participating in conflict distance pretend or cut off. Let's go back for a moment to the example of bumps and dips with shaded circles drawn on paper that we used in podcast two. If we give one person a piece of paper and we ask him or her to identify each circle as a bump or a dip and then give the relationship partner a copy of the same circles upside down and ask him or her to identify each circle as a bump or dip, the two people will have the exact opposite answers. We instruct these two people to determine who is right and who is wrong. For one of these people to accept that he or she is wrong, it requires an acceptance that his or her ability to interpret the environment is questionable or wrong. Being unable to depend on oneself to accurately interpret his or her own world threatens the self. Being wrong means that we do not know and not knowing means the brain does not know how to keep us safe. Anxiety proliferates in the environment of not knowing when using the emotional state of mind to assess for threat or safety. <coughs> Make no mistake, when a person loses an argument, the loss implies a threat, even if the conflict itself ends. We might ask ourselves, what have we won when we win an argument? The reduction of anxiety and the return to a sense of internal calm 
may seem a worthy prize. No one can diminish the relief inherent in being in a calm state. However, when we stop to think about what we sacrifice in our own maturation, as well as what our relationship partner experiences, we may begin to question the worth of the prize. If we pause long enough to gain a historical perspective, we can see that in fact the struggle is focused at that instant on a particular issue. In other words, conflict alleviates anxiety in the person who uses conflict to defend against the sense of threat to self. It is like the honey badger, whose aggression does not make logical sense, attacking when the outcome will result in physical injur injury to the badger. It's in the nature of the honey badger to engage in conflict. The nature of the conflictual person forces that person to identify an issue. Logical or illogical is of no consequence and engage in conflict. It is the conflict itself that releases the person from increasing amounts of anxiety. The issue of the conflict is not the primary driving force of the conflict. Conflict is the only way the conflictual person knows to reduce anxiety. As soon as anxiety has been reduced to a tolerable level, the conflict can end. Resolution of an issue is not the end game in this process, although the process gives the impression that something's been resolved. The conflict continues until the negative energy of anxiety has dissipated. The issue itself doesn't really matter. Ask anyone who lives with a conflictual person and you will hear a, an historical account of the same issue being dredged up over and over and over again, resolved until the next time a conflict is needed. Or one witnesses illogical issues that are impossible to resolve, taking on great importance, all to be forgotten soon after the conflict ends. Let's go back to the woman who described that she felt good after a good argument. She identified a topic of conflict, literally goaded her relationship partner until the conflict erupted, engaged wholeheartedly in the conflict until her anxious energy had been drained, and then she sensed real relief. Her relationship partner was left exhausted and sensing hopelessness about the relationship. She couldn't understand his hanging on to the aftermath of the argument. She was then ready to re-engage in the relationship. And some people do report that the making up after an argument is worth the process of the conflict. It may be that after conflict is the only time that closeness is tolerable to the person who engages in conflict. The alleviation of threat and anxiety allows for closeness, but this type of closeness is elusive and it won't last for long because it's not the type of closeness that is based in emotional maturity. The closeness has been imposed by another person. Another woman used to threaten her husband with divorce if he didn't have sex with her. The argument would ensue. They made up by having sex as he took her threat of divorce seriously, and they presented to the world as a happily married couple. Again, we see the imposition of will of this woman on her husband. Imagine what it's like to have sex with someone, knowing that they are merely responding to a threat you made. And then imagine what it's like to have sex with someone because you've been threatened. No one would say this is a happy arrangement, 
in which either person has gained anything. But this isn't an uncommon experience. The sense of self is either bolstered for the person who engages the conflict or diminished for the person who is the recipient of the conflict. When the sense of self is bolstered through conflict, the sense of self hinges on the continuation of conflict as a strategy to lower anxiety, which means the process has to remain alive. It's the same as a bully who has to keep bullying in order to sense safety as an individual. One incidence of bullying does not suddenly provide the bully with enough self-worth to stop. When a person forces another person to bend to his or her will, that person experiences having an exaggerated false sense of how important the self is to the other person. This false importance seems safer than recognizing that the expectations of being bent to the will of an individual is inappropriate in an adult relationship. It is important for the person who uses conflict to believe that the relationship partner will bend to his or her will to meet the individual's needs. This individual factually faced real physical danger as a baby in not having his or her needs met and furthermore needed the relationship to meet those needs. A correction between the expectations of a parent-child relationship and the expectations of an adult partnership relationship has not been made. The same expectations that an infant had of his or her parent when the individual's only option to process information was through the emotional state of mind remains alive and represents a lack of emotional maturation. That is so hugely important. Emotional immaturity keeps the experience of threat alive in the relationship. Anxiety can escalate quickly and end in conflict because the threat to self always exists, exists just under the surface. The conflict provides only a temporary reprieve from the threat to self. Just like a blowfish when threatened looks bigger, stronger, more capable of defending itself than it is in reality, the person who uses conflict gives the same false impression to others. However, the individual briefly also senses that false sense of self due to making others comply with the individual's needs. I can take care of myself. I don't need you. You need to do what I want. I'm more important than you are, etc. are all impressions about the individual's self as one engages in conflict. Conflict leads to the impression of a winner and a loser, but on closer look the status of winner or loser seems totally inaccurate. What a winner wins when one wins a conflict is a false sense of respect from others, a false sense of being right, a false sense of being important, a false sense of compliance, a false sense of being heard, a false sense of acceptance, a false sense of being cared for or esteemed, a false sense of being able to accurately perceive and interpret experiences. What is lost when one loses a conflict is a sense of being important, a sense of self-respect, a sense of being able to perceive and interpret the world accurately, a sense of being reasonable, a sense of being worthy, a sense of being heard, a sense of being acceptable, a sense of being cared for. As with the winner, 
the loser experiences a level of chronic anxiety from the diminished sense of self. How that person reacts to the, th to the threat of self depends on the emotional behavior to threat that has been learned by that person early in life. Losing a conflict may diminish the threat to the relationship, the potential loss, but the threat to the individual self actually increases. Oftentimes, relationships dissolve into a series of conflicts, physical and or verbal, with each episode being resolved, only to erupt again later. It's not unusual for a couple never to see the underlying emotional process, but to believe that with each ending of each episode of conflict, some sort of resolution has occurred. Au contraire. At the end of each episode, the conflict person returns to the state of calm, while the other person must negotiate an imbalance in the need to be an individual self and the need to be in a relationship. If the need to be an individual self is high in this person, the argument continues. It's when the need for the relationship is high that the conflict ends. Whatever compromise, humiliation, etc. is necessary to end the conflict. It is a small price to pay at that moment to secure the relationship. Peace comes with a high price tag and not just for the person who lost the argument. While the relief sensed from the release of pent-up anxiety can seem well worth the energy expended in conflict, the need to impose one's will on another person requires one's life focus to be on the other person. The same expenditure of life energy could have been spent to gain a deeper understanding of self and the constant state of threat that is experienced. The maturation of self and development of one's own life interests and goals must be set aside to monitor the other person. And in fact, this furthers and deepens the threat to self. <clears throat> the resultant anxiety, once again, begins damming up until the person can no longer contain his or her anxiety and the attack on the other person begins yet again. It's important to remember that this constant need for watchfulness and focus on the relationship partner for any indication of threat from them is an emotional process learned very early in life. The person filters any information that doesn't fit with what he or she is looking for as evidence of the threat to self in any relationship. The partner, no matter what contrary evidence exists, is the enemy. The conflictual person will uncover evidence of this as, he or her, as his or her distortion of reality actually produces the evidence. However, the paradox in the process of imposing one's will on another person is that the person who uses conflict doesn't actually have a will of his or her own. It is this threat to self, which has nothing to do with the relationship partner, to which the person is reacting. In order to impose one's will, one must be almost constantly focused on the other, robbing the self of life energy, which could be used to direct his or her own life. As the anxiety about the lack of self climbs, it must be discharged toward another person who is assumed to be the threat. It's a vicious cycle of self-fulfilling prophecy that takes its toll on the individuals involved as well as on the relationship. 
The person who must constantly monitor his or her partner must use life energy to focus on his or her partner, which precludes using his own or her own life energy for his or her own self. This creates and sustains the very threat to self he or she knew existed, because all relationships pose this threat. This threat stems from the perceptions and interpretations of the behaviors of the relationship partner based on the cues he or she actively searches for in the relationship. The diminished sense of self substantiates the threat as life energy to be self-directed literally is lost in the need to protect oneself from the relationship partner. In turn, the relationship partner must then engage in protective actions for his or her own self as it is threatened by this overzealous conflictual partner. The relationship partner can easily expend massive amounts of life energy monitoring the conflictual relationship partner for any indication of a trigger that will result in the conflict. The discharge of this anxiety flourishing in these relationships experiences that are not based on reality leaves both persons on unsure footing. The one certainty is that this process in conflict, it will continue. One woman reported that she and her husband could have a relatively solid relationship during the week, only to face weekends fraught with conflict. Her husband focused on his work relationships during the week. In his workplace, he made constant accusations of his co-workers. He constantly monitored their behaviors and reported them for any violations in policies or procedures that they failed to follow no matter how minuscule his violations were. Then on the weekend, he was free to focus his life energy on his wife. She could describe the process in great detail. It started on Saturday morning as soon as she awoke. He had some complaint that he registered with her. No matter how compliant she was or how she handled the complaint, the onslaught of finding some fault with her continued until she engaged in the conflict he seemed hell-bent on having. Once the conflict occurred, he became calm. Most of the time after the conflict happened, and she made some sort of threat toward him, he calmed down. They could proceed with their weekend plans at that point in time, but her commitment to the relationship was lessened each and every time. Eventually, they divorced. It was only when he was engaged in another relationship that he left her alone. When he wasn't in another relationship, he continued his anxious focus on her. He would make phone calls to her and make some kind of complaint about something regarding the divorce. She finally became able to see that she was functioning as a drainage ditch for his anxiety, and she cut ties with him. The conflictual attacks may be experienced by the relationship partner as irrational and or even crazy. This accusation substantiates for the person initiating the attack as further evidence of the threat to self. No matter what the relationship partner does or does not do, the attack will continue until the conflict has released the stored-up anxiety, and then the conflictual person can return to calm. Both people may engage in the conflict. Whether or not this happens depends on which of the four behaviors the other person has found more effective in the reduction of anxiety. We've all known people who cannot stop arguing until the other person attacks back. This forces the relationship partner to engage in conflict, 
which may take a while if the relationship partner uses other emotional strategies first. This process was set in place long before this couple ever met. The general assumption is that if the relationship partner can somehow manage to lower the stress, their partner experiences are weight on circumstances to change that are stressing the person, the relationship will be okay. This is a fundamentally flawed assumption. We've all known people whose conflictual reaction will become more intense if the relationship partner speaks even one word. This relationship can end up being physically dangerous. When one person in a relationship system predominantly uses conflict to manage his or her, her own anxiety, the relationship will be a conflictual one. In periods of calm, the person who uses conflict predominantly may seem able to see the irrationality of the attacks and even demonstrate some remorse. And while these assertions are genuine, the ability to be rational pales as anxiety builds as he or she again begins the continual process of looking for the threat that he or she knows exists from the relationship partner. For a brief period each cling to the belief that all is well in the relationship and that the conflict has been resolved. The conflict however lurks in the shadows as the need for the self remains. Threatened by the anxiety driven over focus on the relationship partner this state of overfocus is locked inside the person who uses conflict. Even if the relationship partner provides clear and irrefutable evidence that the threat is not real, the missile has been launched, and if that missile does not strike its target, another will be launched. The anxiety must be discharged. With this pattern, it's difficult to make decisions about the viability of the relationship. At times, it appears as if the relationship is loving and supportive of the individuals in it. The shock of the next episode of conflict can seem rather absurd when an observer looks at the history of the relationship. But for the people in the relationship, it's hard to see and or focus on the pattern as each engages in a content-laden process. I hope this has been helpful to you to hear my ideas about conflict and that you can use these ideas uh, to help you in your own relationship. The next podcast is going to be about distance and I hope that you uh, join me for that. So until next time. <laughs>